0: Welcome to Little Atoms on Resonance 104.4 FM, a live talk show about ideas and culture with an emphasis on ideas of the Enlightenment. Little Atoms is presented by Neil Denny, Podrick Reedy, Richard Sanderson and Becky Hogg, as well as regular guest presenters. Little Atoms
1: actively promotes science, freedom of expression, scepticism and secular humanism. Our guests bring ideas that are challenging, sometimes controversial, often polemical, but always interesting.
0: Good evening welcome to another edition of Little Atoms. Tonight with me, Neil Denny, and we have Becky Hogg. And I'm going to hand over to Becky, who is going to introduce our guest tonight.
1: Angela Saini is an award-winning science journalist and broadcaster who reports for the BBC, New Scientist, Wired, The Economist. Um, her first book, Geek Nation, How Indian Science is Taking Over the World, was published
2: earlier this year by Hodder and Stoughton. Angela, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. It's really exciting. <laughs> I listen to Little Atoms all the time, and I'm really glad that I get to be on it. Oh, that's amazing to hear. Fantastic. (laughs) So listen, Angela, why did
1: you focus on India? Why do we need to have a whole book about India and its role in the world as a scientific power? Is it now the strongest contender? What was was your inspiration?
2: I wouldn't say it's the strongest contender. The reason I wrote the book about India was, one, partly I've worked in India before, so I feel very comfortable there. And I speak Hindi and um, I understand the culture, but also because my husband got an attachment with the BBC Bureau there. He worked for the BBC. He got a six-month attachment and we were it, we, we had just got married. So we were going there for six months and I thought, what can I do? I, I need something to do while I'm there. And I thought, this is a good time to write a book about science in India. There isn't one out there, you know, a popular science book about India. And um, I had this six-month gap to fill and I just thought, this is, you know, this is perfect. Good timing. Mm-hmm.
0: Why mm-hmm. are we talking about India rather than elsewhere though? Let's talk a little bit about Nehru, let's talk about Niru and Nehru's sort of vision for what India would be like, I think, is would be a good way to approach yeah, it. Yeah,
2: India's, uh, India has got this wonderful geeky culture, and it depends on how you define geekiness, because I know it it's a derogative term in many parts of the world, and in India as well. When I was there, um, there's this big IT boss called Narayana Murthy, who founded Infosys, which is one of biggest, India's biggest IT companies, and um, when I told him the title of my book, when I went to interview him, he was really offended, <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) He looks like a stereotypical (laughs) geek. He's got his huge glasses. He's, um, you know, really geeky looking. His office is like a library and really neat. But then... You know, to me, geekiness is about passion and obsession and intelligence and all these things, and that's what I wanted to get across. And in those ways, Nehru, Jawaharlal Nehru, who was India's first prime minister after India became um, independent from the British, was a bit of a geek himself. Um, He studied natural sciences at Cambridge, so um, he had a science background. And when he became prime minister, he really felt... um, And, you know, this was the 1940s, 1950s. This was a time when... Countries all over the world believed that science could have this transformative effect, that technolo- you could harness technology and make a better. Um, nation out of it. And he really bought into that idea. So he surrounded himself himself with scientists and he bought into this vision that, you know, by investing hugely in universities and colleges and hydroelectric dams and nuclear power and all these things, that they can make India into this big kind of scientific powerhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he died long before that even started to happen. but it, But in a way, his vision is coming true now. So it's interesting the way you define
1: um, a, a geek. I'm someone who positively self-identifies as a geek. And <laughs> I absolutely agree with you that it's about passion. It's about um, creativity and, you know, sort of being the sort of hobbyist hacker type. So... One of the first things that struck me about your investigation into India is that actually you, find, you found that spirit quite hard to find. Often when you went to the technical institutes that Nehru's uh, initiatives that you've just described had founded, you didn't see that creativity, at least not on the surface. And I wonder if you could explain a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, this is a bit of the problem when it comes to a new scientific society. I mean, what's driving science in India at the moment or driving technology is money. Um the i t industry, the outsourcing industry, makes millions and millions of dollars billions of dollars. That means that if you 're an i t graduate or an engineering graduate, you can be earning more than your parents could ever have hoped to have dreamed um, in one stroke and That is a huge driver for young people and that is what has made loads of people go to study engineering and that isn't conducive to geekiness really because Mm. you're doing it for the money, you're not really doing it for the passion of it. And so when I went to the IT colleges, the engineering colleges, the big ones called the IITs, I was kind of disappointed because I was hoping it would be, you know, I'd come across loads of young geeks tinkering with stuff, building things, designing their own apps and, you know, really fun. And it wasn't like that. They were just working their asses off to get their way through college and get the best job and get the best grades, which is part of the problem that India faces now.
0: In some respects, that attitude itself, ironically, helped to kick-start the very recent sort of take-up of India as as a sort of powerhouse in the, the, the... Let's talk about the millennium bug problem, first of all, and how that, you know, how that...
2: Yeah. Well, um, India has, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but India's IT industry actually goes back quite a long way to the 1960s, 1970s. That's when investment started. And companies like Infosys, which I mentioned before, that was started, um, I think, in the early 1980s or even late 1970s. But um, they weren't the big Multinationals, we think of them today. It wasn't until um, the year 2000, or in the run-up to the year 2000, when all these companies in the West had the Millennium Bug problem, which is that when the clock struck zero, that it would go to zero zero, and they would think it was 19, 19- the computers would think it was 1900 instead of 2000, and they didn't have the software to cope with it anymore because they'd phased it out and they'd replaced it with new stuff. But in India, a lot of the engineers were still using the old software COBOL because their systems were too old and slow to cope with anything else. So weirdly and very luckily, here was this mass of Indian engineers, really well trained, really, really clever, who could fix all the Western computers at a low cost because they were in India and do it really quickly. And that's what spurred innovation and or not innovation but spurred the industry forward and really bought in the big bucks Mm. and made it grow rapidly
0: but also sort of entrenches that idea that they're you know it's almost like sweatshops of of it people just crunching masses and masses and masses of code i mean
2: that's our stereotype from the 1990s we've all seen the pictures of them these kids just rows and rows of them sitting there in front of a computer just churning out lines of code, checking that it's right or wrong. But that's not the reality today. I mean, things have moved on. Even though there is still an element of that, outsourcing, um, IT, maintenance, which is basically what that is, is not a very creative job. And there are still thousands of um, people who work in those kind of jobs. But the industry is trying to change because it understands that it doesn't have that cost competitiveness anymore because India is a wealthier place. And so they've got to innovate to keep, yeah. keep the edge so we should be clear at this point that the book isn't just about computers and software. No.
1: <laughs> um, and one of, one of the chapters that I found most interesting was the was ch- chapter that you've called Chariots of Fire, which was about how uh, spiritualism that India is you know, often quite famous for, we were speaking um, before we came on air about the various book covers that were proposed for this book, that a lot of them referenced Indian spiritualism. So this chapter deals with how spiritualism coexists in India with this scientific drive in a completely different way than anyone in the sceptic or science community would recognise in the West. I mean, here, Christianity and scientists seem to be at loggerheads constantly, whereas in India, the relationship's quite different. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, it's weird. India is this country full of paradoxes. You know, you have this eat, pray, love India on one end. And then the India I recognise is the India that I wrote about in Geek Nation, which is this kind of uh, techie, quite um, savvy, modern, young, design-led India. And The fact is, the truth is... That, I mean, they're both true. Both mm. those realities are true. Um, but how do they square with each other? How can you have a country that's so spiritual and religious and takes religion really seriously, but at the same time um, manages to produce so many scientists and engineers um, and export so many scientists and engineers? Um, and it was a difficult one to crack. I thought about it for a really long time. And for a long time I thought, should I even cover it at all? Is it, does it even have a place in a book about science? But then that would be to ignore a huge swathe of what people believe and scientists believe in religion. There are lots of Hindu scientists in India and Muslim scientists and uh, Christian scientists. So the way I did it was to look at where they clash, where do they come up? Because I think for most people in India, religion is not an issue when it comes to their work. They separate it quite well. And I don't know whether that's because of the nature of Hinduism. It's quite fluid and it lets you, you know, um, kind of hold maybe conflicting beliefs or competing beliefs and not not let it affect your everyday life. It's quite a fluid religion that way. But there are cases where it clashes, and in Chariots of Fire, that's what I talk about. It's these Hindu scholars, and there's quite a few of them, and I was surprised at how many people actually do believe this stuff. Um, Hindu scholars who believe that thousands of years ago, Hindus gods maybe, but they don't really make that clear, travelled in flying saucers to other planets and met with aliens. And what do you do when somebody tells you that they believe that? I mean, I really thought it was made up and that it was just conflated and the press had just like whipped up these ideas. Mm-hmm. But um, I actually went to the place where they do research on it and where these ideas originated. Um, this is the Academy
0: of Sanskrit Research. Research
2: in Melcott Now, Melcott is on the top of a hill almost in the middle of nowhere, like really far out the way, and it took me a while to get there. Um, And the road is so empty and so rarely driven on that the farmers had laid out their hay on the road to dry, so I was crunching (laughs) over it when I was driving there. And um, you get there, and there's this kind of ruined old little town with a few ice cream stands, because I think a few religious tourists go there occasionally. And then further on from there is this academy, and you have to take your shoes off when you go in, because they treat it almost like a temple. And there are people wearing religious robes, and in that place there is a room where they have rows of model aircraft which they've collected <laughs> from somewhere. You know the kind, You know if you go to a collector's shop, the little like metal, models, yeah, that you can no. make yourself, <laughs> just like that. In in this place, no, I mean they haven't built them. They they either built them themselves or they bought right. them, but they're not original models. Mm. And pictures of what they think. These ancient spacecraft looked like, and then poetry and stuff to accompany it. you know I kept an open mind up till then, but when the guy said to me with a completely straight face, you know they went to other planets and met with aliens i didn't I just didn't know what to mm. didn't know what to believe anymore
0: but <laughs> Becky already raised this idea of talking about how religion and science coexist can coexist in india and and in in the West, the two are often as loggerheads. There's an interesting distinction in that as well, in that um, Hinduism particularly has this habit of trying to co-op science into it. So let's talk about this idea of the um, the Hindu Vedas. What's, what is that? Tell us a little bit about...
2: Well, the Vedas are a religious text, like the Bible is a religious text. Um, and um, I haven't read them myself, they're in Sanskrit, but I've read translations. And the idea is that by... There are very few people these days who can read Sanskrit and very few people who kind of decode it and try to understand what it means. But they're very spiritual, philosophical texts. So in the same way as with a piece of poetry, you can read so many meanings into something. There are metaphors. And Indian languages themselves are very full of metaphors. So there's so much you can kind of draw out that might be true or might not be true. Um, And so it's in the interpretations by modern people that this kind of spacecraft thing came from. It wasn't from the Vedas themselves. Mm-hmm. It was a guy who read the Vedas, was inspired, a guru, was inspired, and then he wrote this scientific text as a result of that. So really it's a product of his thought or imagination, if you like, or spiritual enlightenment. It depends on <laughs> which perspective you come but, from. But really. an
0: example would be <laughs> that, again, with sort of creationism, we have the, you know the, the idea of the Big Bang yeah. and... Fundamentalist Christians would say, well, that clearly didn't happen because the Earth's only 6,000 mm. years old, whereas the people that interpret the Vedas would say, well, the Big Bang's in there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's a different way of looking at it. But really it stems from the same thing. It's a, it's a discomfort that comes from the fact that science has the answers and we don't have the answers. And, you know, trying to square that problem and try to explain to people, your followers, people who would have turned to you for all these explanations once, trying to justify it to them and say that, no, yes, the science might have the facts there, but actually the facts, we already had them first and we can prove that we had them first. So I think it's a product of desperation on their part, trying to cling to their religious beliefs. One of the things I thought was so successful about this book and certainly
1: kept me reading um, through it was the way that in each chapter a different sort of aspect of of India was set against science and and, and you sort of saw what happened. And we're very interested in GMOs and genetically modified GM food here. We had Stuart Brand on the show earlier this year talking about it. Mm -hmm. And there, I think, you you paint a really great uh, picture of um, how history, India's history and its national identity is perhaps influencing the way GMOs are accepted or otherwise in in the country and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the stories that led you to that view or the people that you met and their different attitudes GMOs
2: Yeah, well, GM is, uh, as well as being a scientific issue, is a deeply, deeply political issue, like you guys know. And it's difficult to separate the two, and I found it impossible, which is why that chapter is as political as it is scientific. Farmers are quite pragmatic, I think. When they think that something works, they will go for it. And that's been the history in India as well. They introduced BT cotton, which is a cotton... Breed developed by Monsanto that is resistant to the bullworm, Mm -hmm. which decimates cotton crops. When it was introduced, it was so successful, almost all the cotton grown in India now is that BT cotton variety. Not just Monsanto one, but now there are indigenous varieties as well, GM BT cotton. So that means that farmers must think it works, otherwise they wouldn't grow it. But when they've tried to introduce other GM crops, so they tried to introduce a breed of aubergine activists just came up dead against it. They they used all kinds of arguments, some very legitimate, because there are reasons to worry about GM crops, just as much as there are good reasons to grow them. But some of them were really airy-fairy, kind of, you know, this is a foreign technology, it's like a weapon, it's violence against the soil, using Gandhi as a justification for not growing GM crops. Because India is not un- uniquely, but I think perhaps uniquely in terms of culturally an agricultural nation they believe very strongly in this idea of land ownership my dad still his family still have land even though none of them are farmers they still have a plot of land big plot of land in Punjab and they won't give it up they will never get rid of it because there's this idea that everybody should have their piece of land which makes industrial farming impossible Mm. and um, because everyone's you know everyone's split up and they've got tiny tiny bits all over the place Um, so you can't really use tractors and you know huge irrigation or anything and that's one of India's problems is that farmers are making less money because there's less money to be made from their tiny plots of land and yet this country is getting richer so everything's becoming more expensive so through GM they you know they need new technologies to get more from the land and be more productive but at the same time the system is set up in such a way that they really it's a losing proposition whichever way you look at it Yeah, so it's a it's a complicated one. What I wanted to get across in Geek Nation was this idea that here is this huge driving love of science and technology, which promises to make India this huge industrialized, developed nation, and yet there are so many cultural and social pressures that prevent it at the same time.
0: You're listening to Little Atoms this week with me, Neil Denny, and with Becky Hogg, and we're talking to Angela Saini about her book Geek Nation. So what, I want to go back to somebody you. You mentioned earlier on, and this is narianna murphy the... did Murphy he's not Irish Murphy, murphy. <laughs> <laughs> <And>, um, murphy. <laughs> he has had family in Ireland but. <laughs> Um, he was the founder of Infosys. He set up this incredible like sort of Google world-esque place in Bangalore. So let's tell us about tell us about what that's like.
2: It was so cool. I'd never been to Bangalore before I'd written this book and when I drove up the expressway to Emphasis, They just opened it that day or that week. Yeah, when you drove it just up opened it? so it was empty and it was just me. I felt like you know, a real glamour queen driving up this amazing brand-new slick road to Electronic City, and you need pass after pass to get through into this wonderful enclave. And then, you know, these incredible buildings, and you drive around in these these huge... Pimped out golf buggies to see it. And it takes 20 minutes to get around the place, even in a buggy. You can't walk it. And there was this uh, triangular building modeled on the Louvre in Paris. There's another building which is huge structure with a hole in the middle and locals have called it the washing machine because it kind of looks like a washing machine and it's just incredible that basketball courts every kind of fast food outlet you can imagine it's like silicon valley but maybe even better than silicon valley i loved it (laughs) i stole actually when i went to the emphasis (laughs) office i went into Narayana murthy's office and it's like going to bill gates's house you know it's so you know everyone around me was just you know their jaws dropped when when I told them that I was going to meet him, and his office is actually really simple he 's a really simple, plain living guy. His books on his shelves have got stickers on them, like in a library, and there's loads of them, and his desk is totally bare, really simple table and When the tea came, they bought packets of sugar with the emphasis logo on them. they had like their own branded sugar, so I stole one of them I still have. It. <laughs>
0: One of the things that comes out of that out of that chapter, and you know, you, you illustrate the, the various big companies that through f- f- talking about the the visit to emphasis. But one of the th- the interesting things that comes out of that chapter is is this idea that although there are these new incredible sort of tech worlds that are being built, there's not a lot of innovation going on. So India is is almost still in the sort of pattern of what Japan was back in the 60s, which is yeah. churning out cheaper, more efficient versions of existing products. So let's talk a little bit about, again, why this is the case.
2: Well, these IT companies would say that is innovative, what they're doing, because reverse engineering and making Mm. things cheaper does involve some skill, but it's not kind of disruptive, big change in the way that you know Microsoft and IBM do their work. Um, and it's simply because they just don't invest enough money in it. I mean, the amount they spend in, on research and development compa- compared to the big companies like Google and Microsoft is tiny, um, so you can't expect that much from it. But at the same time, they recognise they have to change because it's just not sustainable. They're hiring people from all over the world, the best possible graduates. Um, I went to Oxford in January to the careers fair um, to do a talk and Emphasis had a stand there which means they're hiring the best graduates in the world to go and work for them Um, but these graduates aren't going to go and work for just some simple outsourcing company they're they're going to want to do exciting work Um, and that's a dilemma that's the barrier they need to cross now I'm sceptical about whether it's these big companies that are really going to drive that but what I do believe is that by creating these big campuses, these huge IT parks in these hubs, they've created clusters which attract loads of great, um, talented young people. So people are returning from Silicon Valley to come and set up their own companies, startups in India. And that is the exciting thing. That's where the exciting yeah. innovation is going to come from.
0: When I talk about the, the, you know this idea that they're not necessarily innovating existing products, is this Crazy assumption, really, that I'm talking about, they should be innovating products that we already have in the West, which there's no reason why that should be the case. And you talk about innovation that is going on in products that will have a very specific application in India. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about this, which I'd never heard of, which is amazing. There's the voice web.
2: Yeah, the spoken web. Well, it's IBM scientists in India who are working on this, but it's purely an Indian invention. It's an Indian team that are running it. Um, and it's become one of IBM's big projects. Um, they call them big beds or Big Bets or something like that. Um, And uh, it is a web that, instead of running on text, runs through your mobile phone, purely through the word. So, um, you know, when you call up your bank and they um, put you through to a helpline and then you press a number and it puts you through to another helpline and then so on and so on that's how it would work so you just type in you know the letter that you need I have to say but based huge. on that characterization, when I read it
1: I thought no <laughs> not, not like an
2: endless phone automated I know I think they have to work that kink out because just imagine if you need something really specific you'd be sitting there just pressing buttons all day trying to get what you want I'm, I'm not sure exactly how they're going to work that out but they've trialled it already they've developed the system uh, which is based on HSTP which is like HTTP but hyperspeed each transfer protocol and they trialed it in a farming community and it really worked exactly in the same way that the internet the text internet works um you know people were using it they were leaving messages and you know they had boards and they had programs that people could listen to and it's good in india it works there are high rates of illiteracy so it works on that level also the text internet doesn't cover languages a lot of indian languages so it's good for communities like that it can it's very good for local small local communities, Um, and of course the blind.
1: And there are a couple of other, and this is sort of picking at random now the sorts because we've been we've been quite hard on oh there's no innovation, there's no innovation and, and, and picking up the problems. But actually mm-hmm. a couple of issues that you mentioned or, or, or endeavours that you that you mentioned that were really only happening in India. The thing that I was really interested in was the open source drug discovery project. And then there was also the um, research into thorium nuclear reactors, which yeah. obviously your book came out before the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Well
2: they're still pressing ahead with it. Yeah. I don't see I d I don't think they're going to renege on that. I mean the only thing that might happen with Indian nuclear now is that they reconsider siting of nuclear plants, right. but they're definitely not going to stop the programme.
1: But talk about how the, why the thorium nuclear uh, nuclear reactors are, are special compared to other nuclear reactors and why particularly India, because I found that really fascinating why India was, was alone exploring these, these, these reactors, or have I, have I got that wrong? You're sort of looking at me like... No, no, they're not about. alone.
2: Um, <laughs> the very first nuclear reactor that was ever built was a thorium reactor yep. in the US, um, but they ditched it because... You Uranium can also be used to build weapons. Which in the 70s was a good thing. Yeah, it was right? a good thing because then you, you, know, you kill two birds with one stone. You get your power on the one hand and you get your weapons on the other. But it's only, you know, so they went down the uranium route and the plutonium route. And it's only now that um, people are revisiting thorium because nuclear weapons aren't such a good thing anymore. And we have the ura- uranium we need for them anyway. Um, and India happens to have loads of thorium. It's really abundant. Um, one of the biggest stock stocks in the world it's just lying on the beaches that's how common it is and so for years and I was really surprised by this I mean I knew they had a thorium power program I didn't realize how old it was and part of the reason is because it's so secretive they do the research for this in the same place they do their weapons research and it took me three months of achingly horrible, you know, phoning people up, flagging people down, actually going to meet people across the country to try and get into this place before I actually got to meet the scientists. And they were very cagey. But since the 1980s, they've been working on these huge thorium reactor plans, which they hope to roll out in the next few decades, um, which would... I mean, the great thing about thorium is, one, it it can't be turned into weapons. Also, it's slightly... um, more environmentally friendly than uranium they say because um, its half-life is different which means that its waste products are shorter lived so it doesn't need to be stored for so long after um, after the waste comes out so there are benefits to using thorium and they've already built a small reactor that works using this material and they're they're planning to build big ones in the future which is really exciting. So India's going to have this huge abundant source of energy in decades to come that hardly anybody knows about <laughs> which is yeah weird.
0: So- We're virtually out of time, but we need to talk very briefly about um, on today, the the day when we've seen the last space shuttle launch, something else that's been going on for a surprisingly long time is India's space programme. So tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. Oh, I wish I could talk about it for ages because it's so cool. You've got a minute. (laughs) I went to um, the Vikram Sarabhai Space Centre, which is not where the big launches happen, where the little launches happen. And I saw, saw a small space rocket launch, which is a weather satellite or like a weather thingy. And it was just so cool. It was really loud and exciting. And India has already sent a probe to the moon which turned out pretty well. It wasn't a huge success, but it was enough of a success that it was scientifically useful. And they are planning to send astronauts next. A few years ago, they set up a space institute to train up young space scientists, possibly the next astronauts, which is really exciting because in a few years, or at least within the decade, we could have Indian astronauts going into outer space.
0: Well, that's definitely something we should talk about on another show, I think. You're right, but there's a a lot of material there. We should perhaps have brought it up earlier. Angela, thank you so much for um, coming and speaking to Little Atoms today.
2: You're very welcome. I loved it.
0: You've been listening to Little Atoms.
1: You can find details of upcoming guests at our website, littleatoms.com. The Little Atoms podcast is available on iTunes. Thanks for listening.